You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 13. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Janan Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sana Leup! It's going to be an exciting show because it's number 13 and number 13 is very, very, very lucky. Yay! Or unlucky. <laughs> we will, we'll see how it goes. We will probably fail on everything, but that's fine. That's all right. <laughs> but there have been many changes around us lately. Uh, not in personnel, as you hear, you can hear. Good. I thought I was fired. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was resigning. No, but for example, have you noticed any changes on our website? Hmm. It looks a little bit more modern, doesn't it? Yeah, it works better. Yeah. <laughs> and it's much easier to maintain now. Yeah. Uh, it was a hell of a lot of work to transfer from one structure to the other, but I think it was worth it. So I hope our listeners like it. But what I really like about it is how the event calendar looks. So yes. it's it's a great outlook. It's very nice and neat and clean. Lots of information. It's very easily readable. So you won't find it that difficult as you used to to find out what's going on actually. So um, especially, for example, that, that feature I really like when you hover the, the mouse pointer um, above one of the events then a box comes up and everything is uh, displayed and oh wow, it's awesome so it works pretty well uh mm-hmm. i i hope everyone will like it and i do hope that everyone is going to be using it like crazy because uh we are going to play our what's on in europe segment down a bit uh and the reason being that for some listeners, it's probably not the most interesting thing to hear about what's going on in places where things are happening a long distance uh, away from them. So I still think it's very inspirational to look at it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you look almost every day, there are one thing or other happening. Some days, I mean, I'm looking at the 12th of March now, there are three different events so uh, I think it's very, very nice to look at it. But yeah, I, maybe we don't need to to read it out loud. On yeah, every that's show. it. But I'd like to encourage our listeners to let us know if they disagree, because this is something that we've uh, tried to figure out by ourselves. But if you think it's worth having a segment like that, uh, where we actually talk about these events, uh, then we're going to consider putting it back but we don't want our listeners to get bored after a while just by us reading up information about these um these events so the information is there the information is available and it's it's as as pontus says it's it's pretty neat so when when you see how many different places are featuring events like Skeptics in the Pub events and talks and conferences. It's just amazing to see. And I do hope that it it, it will inspire people to organize these events. And if that happens, it's the best for all of us. 
But one thing is, is very important that you let us know about those events. We are still quite convinced that there are fewer events on the calendar that are actually happening around Europe. So we would like to change that. And I'd like to thank everyone who's sent us information about events because they keep coming, which is brilliant. We love that. And uh, we have some other feedback as well. We had a suggestion for uh, Pontus's segment, Really Wrong, which is going to be covered on this show. And uh, Brad, for example, who said um, it's great to interview not only people from Europe, but uh, but it's it's interesting to put that into a European perspective as well, with which I think we all agree. Yeah, yeah. So when we interview people from outside Europe, their perspective is is, is valid. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely, because we are an, um, a, a hugely interconnected movement. So it's it's an international movement, and and we don't operate separately from one another. We learn a lot from one another. We 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 get ideas from others. Uh, this very podcast that we are we are doing right now is partially built on ideas taken from podcasts that that we've been listening to for ages, and it's it's building on one another's achievements. So this is how we get get forward. So please keep them coming and uh, let us know what's going on and what you think. We appreciate all the feedback as well. Yeah, and as always, you can write us and our email address is info at theesp.eu. You can find us on Twitter and follow us. And we are on at espodcast underscore eu. We also have a website. And the address is theesp.eu. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us um, for any updates. Yep, that's correct. Thank you very much. Alrighty. So, I think we should just get right into it. Just do it. Yalana, I do believe you have an interesting person to talk about mm. with relevance to this day. Hmm. I do. I'm very excited about this person um, because um, he is the first person who ever flew into the space. How awesome is that? So his name is, is Yuri wow. Alexeyevich Gagarin. He is the uh, Russian cosmonaut. And he was, in fact, born on the 9th of March, 1934. And he was a Russian pilot and cosmonaut. Um, and like I said, he was the first human to journey into outer space. Uh, when his uh, spacecraft called Vostok completed an orbit of the Earth on the 12th of April, 1961. It's so, so exciting. It's such a great achievement, a human uh, achievement. And, uh, you know, um, we know now how many missions go into space and it's it, it's nothing new. But, I mean, it still just doesn't stop amaze me how far we've come. This put uh, quite a, a pressure on the Americans as well. Right? I was going to say the same thing. I am sure it has uh, at the time. So yeah, he, um, he's he been born into the family of very, uh, you know, the, the parents of Gagarin weren't particularly scientifically minded. His um, mom was a milkmaid and his uh, father was carpenter and bricklayer. So he kind of, he went into school after the Second World War was finished and he excelled uh, in college, etc. So he's been um, uh, taken into, um, to be a pilot. Um, and then uh, when it came to deciding who's going to, 
be the first person to fly into the space, he applied and he was uh, one of 20 people uh, who were shortlisted. And he had, apparently he had a really good character um, and just was a genuinely good, nice human being. And so uh, when the candidates, the 20 candidates were asked, who do you think will be the best person to go into space? He was uh, nominated by um, 16 of them uh that they they thought that he will be the one deserving to do that um out of 20 so that was a real telling thing why is he relevant to skeptics well because science <laughs> <laughs> okay okay i have an angle on that no yelena has one too i just i just so when to... <laughs> uh he did his first flight he came back and he was uh flying um just uh, normal jet planes um he actually died in a crash and when his jet plane crashed, yeah, right. uh, there was a lot of controversy. And what do you know? Even though it was back in 1960, um, it didn't stop people from um, creating lots of wonderful conspiracy theories around why the plane crashed. And I shall be sort of discussing a couple of those because they make me laugh a little bit. So amongst the conspiracy theories were uh, A... He was murdered on the orders of Soviet leader, leader Leonid Brezhnev for an unspecified offense or disloyalty to the party. For non-specified offense. For okay. an, an unspecified offense to disloyalty to the party. And that could be anything, oh. you know, you could say. The, the conspiracy theory number two is that the Gagarin actually, in fact, committed suicide. And conspiracy theory number three, I think my favorite, is that his plane was hit down by the UFO. Of course it was. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Um, yes, that's it. but after very much, uh, you know, many different investigations by, uh, the Russian side and actually Americans got involved. Um, yeah, it, it was, um, uh, revealed that it wasn't that it, it was something to do with another plane that was l- uh, flying too low for, for it, for the allowed, uh, height and created the turbulence and got the plane into a spin and, and they lost control and, it crashed basically, and so when it came out, uh, when when this information came out to light, the the person who revealed it uh, said that the the actual pilot of that plane, second plane, is still alive. He's eighty years old, but he um, his name was never disclosed. Again, it might or might not be true, but it definitely sounds much more plausible than UFO or that he committed suicide. So hang on, Elena. You say you know how old the other guy is, but you don't Yes, correct. But if you read about the uh, latest discoveries, um, you'll find out that um, the guy who who revealed this information, uh, his name is Leonov, he was required not to disclose the name of the other pilot. And apparently the other pilot was reported to be 80 years old. So as of 2013, actually. So he's now more than that. And in a poor health. So I think I, my guess would be they didn't want to reveal his identity because they didn't want a lot of haters just stressing him out and killing him at the end. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. So there you go. And that's where the skepticism comes in because of all the conspiracy theories. Because something, something like this, you know, any big event that happens, there's always excitement around it. And, of course, um, it, this particular one, was not no exception. I have heard another uh, skeptical thing about this. Go on. Uh, or and and this is that before he took off, right? He he had to pee, and he peed against one of the tires of the trucks right. parked close there. So 
And after this, every cosmonaut ever who has ever uh, gone into space do the same thing for good luck. Huh, interesting. Okay, well... Have you heard that? No, well, no, I haven't. But uh, it's, uh, it's a bit like with... Uh, it's like a good luck charm, isn't it? It's a bit like... Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's true. It's just what I've heard. Yeah. You know, it's interesting then. Uh, you put yourself in the face of danger, big time, because you are actually sitting on a bomb when 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 you are launched it's really understandable that people need to have a faith in something that some okay i i haven't been in that, that situation but i would say i would have the faith in science and technology that it works you wouldn't pee on the tire would you i wouldn't i wouldn't do it anyway so i i, I cannot imagine a way <laughs> if i had to pee i i wouldn't try and find a tire to do it on <laughs> I, it's 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 for dogs right but um the the other thing is why i wouldn't buy the alien theory about this because an alien ship wouldn't strike it down it would apply a tractor beam and just <laughs> of course told it would of course it's, it's, the whole it thing would. away exactly so now we proved that it's not so he would be he would be he would have been disappeared yeah so that's 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 an interesting angle so thank you very much Yelena. All right. So Yuri Gagarin, uh, obviously, when he came back, he was very emotional about his travel, and and it's understandable. He was the first human in space. Can you imagine being in his shoes? I it's like mind boggling. And there were a few good things that he said about it, and how beautiful the Earth looks and stuff like that. There is one particular thing that that really strikes me, and I think it will um, appeal to many listeners. Uh, he said that looking at the Earth from afar, you realize that it is too small for a conflict and just big enough for cooperation. And I believe that now this quote is even more relevant than it was 40 years ago, mm. um, if not, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not sure, because it was right in the middle of the Cold War. So it was a big thing. Yeah, it could be the reason why Brezhnev had him killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we now know which side Andrish was on. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, thank you very much. That's That's a great mm. quote, by the way. But I, I do hope you have a quote for us uh, for the There's end of the show. There's going to be another one. There's going to yeah, be another one. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks, Yelena. As I said at the beginning of the show, uh, we're not going to cover the events in the coming week in detail. But um, let me just quickly run through uh, the, the events that we're going to uh, have across Europe. Wednesday, Newcastle Skeptics in the Pub. That's in the UK. But then the next day, on Thursday, there's going to be uh, Hamburg Skeptics in the Pub, uh, which is in Germany. Then, as uh, Pontus already said, on Saturday, the 12th, there are three cities, actually, in three different countries where things are happening. Porto, in Portugal, a Skeptics in the Pub. Stockholm, in Sweden, Skeptics in the Pub. I'll be there. I'll be there. If you want to meet me, I'll be there in Stockholm. Okay, see you there. Mm. And Madrid, Skeptics in the Pub, uh, as well. So that's Spain. That's three different countries. And that's only that we know about. So there might be a few others happening as well. Uh, on Monday, uh, following that, Copenhagen, Skeptics in the Pub. Are you going to be there too, Pontus? 
Eh, no, I don't think so. But I would love to. I would love to. And I love the Copenhagen skeptics. And I know I should be there, but I will not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they don't believe you anymore. Since uh, <laughs> it's been Maybe not. it's been quite a long time you showed up there, right? Uh, it's been over a year. Yeah. Okay, great. So the next day on Tuesday the 15th, again in Germany, Köln, Skeptics in the Pub. And on the 16th, on Wednesday, it's Liverpool, Skeptics in the Pub, organized by the Merseyside Skeptics Society. So there's quite a lot of events, but um, still, there might be a few others. So if you want to check uh, these events out with more details about them, go to our website, theesp.eu, and you'll find the menu item, which is titled Events in Europe, and you'll find the actual calendar, a beautiful calendar, a beautiful, gorgeous-looking, very nicely put-together calendar. Uh, By nicely put-together, I don't mean our work put in it, but the people who actually developed that plugin for WordPress. So, good job, people. Uh, So, keep them coming, please, and send us emails, notes, tweets, uh, we have a contact form on the website that's a new contact form as well. So don't forget to let us know. Let's move on to interesting topics in Europe. All right. It looks like the Good Thinking Society is at it again. Yay! <laughs> Good thinking. These guys, these guys are not really just They are sitting. great. Sitting on their them. butt, not doing They're anything. Fire. They're we on fire. It. <laughs> so it's it's a cool organization. It's, it's it's great to see them working towards such great things and uh, producing great results as well. Now, what they did now, they started a series of investigations to to find out whether osteopaths and chiropractors still offer their services to treat conditions like um, colic. That uh, that is basically abdominal pain um, caused by wind and digestive difficulties in infants. Uh, it's well known to all parents that this is not a rare condition, and there are different things you can do to solve the problem. Well, <laughs> manipulating the baby's spine or um, other skeletal parts is not one of them. But... This didn't stop them in the past from offering their treatments for this, and uh, and not just this, but other conditions as well. And this very fact triggered a famous case in 2008 after Simon Singh, who happens to be the founder of the Good Thinking Society as and uh, one of the greatest science educators uh, in the UK, had written a critical article in The Guardian titled Beware the Spinal Trap, in which... He outlined the bogus claims and the total lack of evidence regarding chiropractic treatments, um, not to talk about the potential dangers of those treatments. Well, he got sued for libel, and all hell broke loose. The Guardian backed him up, and many organizations joined him in his battle against uh, those uh, bunch of quacks. Well, at the beginning, it looked really bad as the British legal system, unfortunately, back then, was favouring these libel cases. Uh, Yeah, libel tourism was was really a thing uh, back then. 
But then another fantastic organization came into the picture, Sense About Science, who started uh, a lobbying campaign with an online petition to keep libel laws out of science. <laughs> I remember when it was uh, still ongoing, uh, and I managed to get a hold of uh, one of their buttons, uh, the, the campaign buttons, and I, I do still have it. Uh, to cut things short, the case was dropped, and after a long battle, I have to say, and uh, f the final victory was uh, when the so-called Defamation Act of 2013 received royal assent. But there were other effects of the case and the related campaigns. So, in summary, it was a classic case of the Streisand effect. Do you know what the Streisand effect is? Mm -hmm. This is where you don't want to draw attention to something. And, and by, by trying to stop it, you actually draw more attention to it. Yeah, well, where it, it comes from, the name of it, is that um, someone posted a photo of uh, Barbara Streisand's house on the internet. And uh, Streisand got pissed off about this. And uh, what she did was uh, she sued them. And this was the reason why it really became a publicly debated topic. So a few people saw the photo initially, but then after she made a thing out of it, it became something that people actually talked about. So this happened with the British Chiropractors Association as well. Of course, a lot of people must have read Simon Singh's article on The Guardian because it's quite a widely circulated newspaper. But um, still, it wouldn't have caused that much problem if the actual uh, liable case hadn't come up. So, uh, by the time the case was settled, the damage was already done. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say they basically shot themselves in the foot. Um, but um, why I'm saying this is because um, chiropractors around the UK started to avoid being caught offering these bogus treatments, um, changed their uh, bulletins, etc. Um, so the Good Thinking Society figured it was time, after more than six years, to find out if they are still in the state of caution. I mean, the, the chiropractors. Turns out, not anymore. Um, they made some undercover phone calls, the Good Thinking Society, to find out what's on offer for an eight-week-old baby with colic. Surprise, surprise! They offered to treat the infant, making ridiculous statements about how a cesarean section can cause colic and other more serious issues or even imply that vaccination is also not that necessary after all. So the situation is really grave. Um, the Good Thinking Society filed a formal complaint to the General Chiropractic Council as well as shared a video uh, outlining uh, this, uh, the details um, of this uh, phone call on their Facebook page. But since then, a a similar findings were shared on the Facebook page about osteopaths. We'll link to both uh, videos and show notes, along with uh, other things uh, mentioned here. But if you want to know more about uh, chiropractic, it was discussed in more detail in the 2008 book, a trick or treatment that Simon Singh co-wrote with Edward Ernst. 
Uh, on uh, episode 11, when I wasn't here, you talked about uh, a colloidal silver. So I wanted to, to do a little bit of a follow-up on that because we've had some experience with that in the Swedish skeptics. So, so on, the, on the show, you said that uh, colloidal silver is dangerous, and it can be, but it depends very much on, on the dose. Uh, we, we had an expert talking about uh, colloidal silver on a Skeptics in the Pub event we had about a year ago in, in Malmö. And according to this expert, um, very often the amount of silver is very much diluted. So it's, it's, it's not homeopathic, but it's very, very low. So it doesn't even have much of, a, of an effect, bad or good. Uh, but it can, of course, lead to... Uh, Something called arguria, which yes. is when you your your skin turns blue, and and uh, that is in uh, connection with exposing your your skin to sunlight, and it turns blue, and it it makes sense because silver was a, a big component in when you uh, created photographic film in the past before everything became uh, digital. But what I wanted to tell you about is that. There is a small company here in Sweden who officially sells colloidal silver as a cleaning agent. But the owner keeps promoting this also as a cure of uh, cancer, Ebola, and basically a cure-all of every disease you can think of. And he does that on a Facebook group, which is closed. And because of this, he got reported to the police uh, about 18 months ago uh, and Disappointingly and inexplicably to me, he was freed from all charges. So he's still doing this. But the Swedish skeptics kept uh, sharing a lot about this on the social media at the time. So we had uh, skeptics in the pub about a year ago where we invited a, an expert in colloidal silver and he started to have his talk, etc. And we were enjoying this. And somebody came into the room. He seemed to be drunk, and uh, he was asking if the game was on, because this was a sports bar where we had the skeptics in the pub. And we told him, no, no, this is not the... Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're not looking at any game. We, we're having a scientific uh, talk here. And he said, okay. And he sat, sat down at the back of the room. Now, the following week, on this closed Facebook group, there were lots of snippets of recordings from our meeting being circulating. Taking out of context, you know, just small things, and and with comments saying this is proving that the Swedish skeptics are saying something when they are in their secret uh, meetings, and another thing when they are, uh, you know, on the social media. So apparently, this stranger who came into the the to the room had a microphone, and he he was a spy, and he wasn't drunk at all; he was just recording everything. So it was interesting, very, you know, almost surreal experience. That is as if it happened in a movie, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I, I feel it's quite... A spy movie. Uh, it's a spy movie. And it, it's quite adequate because they are doing things in secret Facebook groups and they keep it very secretive and it's very hush-hush, etc. So they assume that we do the same thing. Mm. But, you know... The thing is, this Skeptics in the Pub event was published openly and we always put a note. You don't have to be a member of the Swedish Skeptics to be, to attend. Everybody is welcome. And and I was saying uh, the week afterwards, uh, 
if he had told us what he wanted to do, I would have provided him with a microphone. We have nothing to hide. So, uh, but that that's how this other side of the, you know, the, the woo business works. It's secretive, it's, uh, it's uh, nefarious, and everybody's out to get them, and there are spies, and they are, uh, you know, paranoid. Uh, it's really interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, interesting. There is one other thing that uh, we have to report on, and that's a huge achievement uh, for the skeptical movement, and that is the University of Barcelona actually cancelling its uh, homeopathy master's program. Now, the question can be raised, what on earth is a homeopathy master's program? Yeah, the bad Mm. thing is the University of Barcelona is one of the most prominent universities of Spain, and it is very widely recognized all over the world. And they happen to have this uh, master's course at the Faculty of Medicine. They've been running this program since 2004. And even back then, it was quite a bit of opposition that it had to face, uh, this, this course. There are about 20 students at the moment who are finishing in October 2016, and uh, they will be uh, properly finishing their courses, and then there will be no intake afterwards, Uh, which is a great thing. It's a great achievement. But the interesting part is that it was a chemistry student at the university who actually initiated a petition against this uh, course five months ago on the website change.org, which is the very website where the Spanish skeptics uh, started their petition against the use of uh, pseudoscience in medicine. The rationale behind the decision to cancel the course, according to the university spokesman, consisted of three actual points. Firstly, the university's faculty of medicine recommended scrapping the master's because of the doubt that exists in the scientific community. Secondly, a lot of people within the university, professors and students across different faculties, had shown their opposition to the course, in, uh, understandably, I have to say. Thirdly, the postgraduate degree in homeopathic medicine is no longer approved by Spain's health ministry, which means even Spain's health ministry recognized the lack of evidence Uh, in the matter. So that homeopathy is basically just placebo, nothing more. So a homeopathic treatment cannot be considered a proper uh, medicinal uh, treatment. So this is a huge achievement, but unfortunately we have no reason to celebrate fully. Uh, Because in the same country, in uh, Spain, at the University of Zaragoza, There seems to be a series of events organized by none other than Boaron. Do you know who Boaron is? No. No? No. They are the largest provider of homeopathic remedies. It's a French, very powerful company, and they are selling homeopathic remedies all across Europe. And they are actually trying to push for their own products and the the way they do this is they're promoting them at universities and this is wow. one of the programs of Boron so if there are any french skeptics out there it would be very nice 
To hear a bit more about Boiron, because that company is making a lot of profit. I should look up how much the actual profit is that they're making. But I'm assuming it's a huge profit since they have no research to do. They have no serious regulations to adhere to. Uh, what they have to is that the actual production is done under controlled circumstances, which is not a big thing to do for a manufacturing company. But they have no other expenses with it like there is for for uh, other pharmaceutical companies. A homeopathic remedy, come on. What does it contain? Mm. It has, mm. it has no material other than the sugar pill. So it's... Uh, but it has the vibrations, <coughs> Andras, the vibrations. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah, of course it does. But still, it's not a very expensive kind of production that they have to do. And the prices, I don't know about your countries, but the prices of homeopathic remedies are at the level of other normal remedies. It's a very clever thing that they're doing, Boiron, uh, but ethically... It's just really down there. So let's stop Boiron. Yes, let's do that. That's my initiative. So the the next story we have is is rather very depressing because it's about a a man called Mario Rodriguez, 21 years old from Spain, who died uh, because he abandoned uh, chemotherapy uh, for his leukemia after being advised by a healer to try a vitamin cure. And this is really, really sad. Uh, his father now is, has set up a, uh, an organization called APETP. And I won't try to, to pronounce it in, in Spanish, but in English it reads Association for the Protection of, of Patients from Pseudoscientific Therapy. So uh, I hope he gets all the support he, he deserves for that organization. I think this is a good illustration that you don't have to to think that just because you're scientifically literate, you cannot fall for these things. This this young man, Mario Rodriguez, was a, a student of physics at university, and still he fell for these things. I think I think that's quite telling. If you're in a very uh, desperate place, it's very easy to to grasp for for every every uh, hope that you have, and and you can fall for these things. It's it's really really sad. Yeah, that's it. So it's, I don't know. And because of the emotional factor, you see, that the there are these very strong emotions towards a chemotherapy. This is why whenever you, you try arguing with someone, especially when they are in a vulnerable situation, in an emotionally elevated situation, they won't have a proper judgment of the situation itself. They will go through their very strong emotions every time they try to assess the situation and not common sense necessary and definitely not critical thinking. It can happen. It does happen from time to time. Like the the greatest example I can think of is James Randi. I think he was 82 when he went through chemotherapy. Wow. And it looks like he's pretty well. So. Okay. There is something that's happened in Russia recently. Uh, a man has been put on trial for uh, commenting on one of the websites that there is no God 
well, this is a, an issue of free speech, of course, as we know it. Um, and it's pretty uh, alarming because it's beginning of the end <laughs> in, in, in many ways. So basically, um, he was, um, commenting on one of the networks, uh, where the religion was discussed that there is no God and also that Bible is collection of, um, Jewish fairy tales. Um, and then he was reported by two young men, um, that their, their feelings were hurt, insulted the feelings of worshippers. And now he, um, is being charged and, um, prosecuted. Um, so there is no outcome yet. Um, it's been going on for a few months and, um, the Russian law provides se- several, several, um, punishments that he could face uh, in the end. So uh, it's a, it could be either one year prison term, uh, or fine up to 300,000 rubles, which is like um, 3,000 pounds or $4,000 or up to 240 hours of forced labor. But that's not even the point. The point is that, um, like I said, the free speech <laughs> uh, ceased to exist. But I mean, I'm not surprised because we're talking about Russia. But I don't think uh, England is far behind, to be honest. Hmm. Um, I feel really privileged that we are actually free to say things like "there's no God" for now, or well, so for, for now we are. But at least I can say that there is no evidence for a God whatsoever. Yeah. And that's fine. I could even swear with God. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. Well, I think changes are coming to England as well. As far as well, anyway. Well, hopefully, hopefully well, not. But I. I yeah, let's it, let's all go uh, to Canada. <laughs> Canada is the hope of the world. I do think so moment, too. Think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With uh, government ministers who actually know their stuff, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's and it's refreshing. it's a huge change from the f- former government. Well, let's hope this guy gets away with it. Yeah, I mean, it'll be scary because it'll set the president, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, thank you very much. Let's move on to our interview with uh, Bulgarian skeptics Vasilina Volchanova and Lyubomir Baburov. On almost every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have here with us Vasilyena Valchanova and Lubomir Baburov, founders of the Bulgarian non-governmental organization called Evolutionary Vision, also known by the name Ratio. They are organizers of the Ratio Conference and Skeptics in the Pub Sofia as well. Vasi and Lubo, welcome to the show. Hey guys, what's up? Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello, welcome. First of all, it's great to have people from that part of Europe coming on the show because uh, we always hear about other people from other countries, but but that part of of, of Europe is just just uh, underrepresented, I think. So it's very good to have you here. You are the founders of this organization. What is this organization about, and uh, what is the main focus of it? Okay, so so first, thanks for having us. Um, and yeah, that there haven't been a lot of other organizations like us in Eastern Europe in general. Uh, to be honest, when you go to Bulgaria, you go to get your kidney stolen, so that's kind of understandable. Um, so ratio is essentially something where 
we did we started about four years ago. Uh, we wanted to do a popular science events similarly to QAD, to be honest. We wanted it to be accessible. We wanted it to be uh, something that everybody could actually go to and actually get what's what's happening, you know, understand all the speakers. Uh, we didn't want it to be too technical. We didn't want it to be something for like a, like a golden circle type, type of circle joke. Uh, we just wanted it to be accessible for everybody that's kind of interested in science and skeptical thinking. But it's not only in Bulgarian, right? So it's uh, it's quite an international kind of event. Uh, that uh, the event... Okay, let's try to separate things here. So there is this NGO, and the NGO is the organizer of the event. Is that correct? Yep, yep, true. So which one became first, the organization or the event? And when did it happen? The the whole concept for what we were doing was to make the events. And essentially the goal was to get science to be something more recognized in the public space in Bulgaria. So the way we thought about it was to make these events in order to get there. So the NGO was essentially just the, the, the means, something to actually get it going. We needed an entity to actually get the event going. Okay. Uh, but then this entity became something uh, on its own right, organizing other kinds of events as well, right? Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, we basically have two types of events. So you have the ratio forum, which uh, our goal is to have biannually, so one in spring and one in autumn. And then we have uh, monthly events under the Skeptics in the Pub brand uh, that we organize locally in Sofia in different bars where we have uh, one speaker per event and we try to talk about science in a more relaxed way. Okay, and uh, is it only in Sofia or are there any more branches starting to form uh, for the organization or are people picking up this idea somehow? Well, to be honest, we we would very much like to do it in other uh, in other cities as well. But I mean, the main bottleneck right now is resource. I mean, we just don't really have the people or the money to get it going. Um, it's it's no huge surprise that these events cost a lot of money to yeah. make. Well, not the skeptics in the pub one, but ratio in general. So we first are trying to get it. To, to, to make it sufficient by itself so we can branch out. We definitely want to branch out. We definitely want to make it bigger. And not only with events, with other collaborations and stuff, but this takes time for it to be, for it to grow naturally. Otherwise, it's very, very risky in terms of money. So, so how many people are involved in this? And do you have a membership or is it just a more loosely held uh, organization? Okay, so uh, in terms of uh, in terms of people that we work with, uh, basically we have a group of about fifteen people, uh, and it's more of a more of a how should I say? Uh, we we mainly use them for assistance with the events themselves, uh, be it for popularization, be it for procuring sponsors or procuring speakers. Uh, they're also there to essentially audits all the content we're getting on our forums or on our Facebook or wherever. Because, I mean, you have to have some amount of, um, 
like a, like a sieve for information. Basically, we're, we're not amazing in, with every science subject. Uh, for example, I'm interested mainly in physics, others in chemistry, etc. We need to have people that are interested in different stuff so as to be uh, objective in general. So that's the main uh, role of a group of 15 people. Oh yeah, and and um, when was this whole thing started? Uh, it was in 2012. Uh, we were thinking about it from late 2011. It took us some well, we took us some balls to actually get it going, to be honest. But uh, in 2012, we got the first event going. And uh, could you tell us a bit more about uh, what the event is like? So is it is it happening only in Bulgarian or is it more on an international basis? Uh, how how should we imagine this event? Okay, so look, uh, so the event itself is obviously mainly targeted for Bulgaria. Um, that's our goal is local essentially. Um, but uh, mainly uh, speakers are uh, English-speaking, which means that uh, the content itself is international. Uh, we're not looking to promote it outside of Bulgaria, to be honest. I mean, we still have way more work to do in Bulgaria, so as to, so as to be interesting locally. So you don't have a plan to make it international even in the future? I mean, it could be potentially uh, the one event that is specifically for Eastern European countries, like uh, not only Bulgaria, but um, uh, Serbia, the, uh, Croatia, Hungary, Romania. So have you ever considered that possibility? Yeah, obviously we, we have thought about it. To be honest, now that you mentioned it right now, we, we probably haven't considered this this much um, because so far our events, um, first, our events are pretty full. I mean, um, our big events so far reach at about 700 people and our next event is probably going to reach about 1,000 people. Well, um, wow, that means all of those people are from Bulgaria. 99%, yes, yeah. Uh, That's very impressive. Yeah. It is. <laughs> uh, but uh, something, something uh, I wanted to mention here. We are looking uh, for everybody that's interested, pretty much. I mean, we're not saying this is only for Bulgarians or something like that. But the thing is, um, so as to make it accessible, our tickets are really, really low for the event itself. Because I want everybody from Bulgaria that can go to be able to go. Uh, so I'm not sure how this works with getting people from other countries, to be honest. I mean, uh, if if we make it uh, to be an international thing in Eastern Europe, it has to have a somewhat different agenda. Uh, for example, we have to um, have some more foreign speakers to remove uh, some of our Bulgarian speakers, which will drive the cost up. I will have to drive the tickets uh, up further. And that means some people that would be able to come from Bulgaria probably wouldn't wouldn't be able to afford it, which, which isn't a place I really want to go to yet, or I must, I might just be uh, very good at thinking about it, but that's, that's, that's my theory right now. And the, the conference itself, it does it, I'm, I'm assuming the speakers obviously who come from abroad, they speak English, but the conference itself largely takes place and everybody speaks, uh, you know, local Bulgarian. Yes, yes, correct. Everybody's speaking Bulgarian. I mean, it's not an issue to uh, have the whole thing in English, to be honest. As I said, uh, we, we can make the whole agenda and the whole thing. But the speakers themselves, so as to be on an international level, uh, across across the board, 
uh, have to be all speaking English, which might be an issue mm. unless we get English speaking uh, speakers overall. And um, what topics do you usually cover? Could you mention a few names of the those international speakers? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, to be honest, we try not to be uh, focused on any specific um, theme or whatever. Um, we try not to say next ratio will be only for physics or next ratio will be this and this. Uh, my my concept is that we should have as diverse a program as possible. For example, I'm totally cool with, with having uh, biology, physics, chemistry, and some skeptics-oriented talk, uh, or in the same event, so as to uh, have as many people that are interested in one specific thing to come for the whole event and possibly hear something that they didn't think would be interesting for them. Uh, say you're into physics, but you don't really uh, follow psychology this much. You come and you find out something interesting. Um, some of our foreign speakers have been uh, Chris French, uh, Susan Blackmore, uh, Jerry Coyne, uh, Sarah Santos. Andrew Berry. Andrew Berry, yeah. There's a bunch of people. Mm, yeah, quite an impressive list. Um, that all sounds very good. But what still amazes me is that huge turnout. How are you doing in Bulgaria in terms of critical thinking overall in society. How do people know? Because I would assume that even if the goal of this event is to to give something to people that, that they can think about, they, some, some food for thought, still, in order for them to turn up at the event, they have to have some previous knowledge about those people and those topics, some of them at least. So... Those people must be somehow well-educated or well-informed about scientific and skeptical topics. Okay, so, so that was a bunch of stuff. Uh, let, me, let me unpack this a bit. Yeah, yeah. First, uh, Bulgaria is really, really shit in terms of skeptical thinking, <laughs> I must admit. Uh, in Sofia, it's, it's a bit better than the whole country. But it's still we're not we're not really amazing. Uh, we're not religious, for example, um, as a country. But that it's I mean superstitions and a bunch of other weird stuff is rampant. Mm. Um, the the fact that there aren't a lot of events like us, and by me by that I mean there aren't any other events like us in Bulgaria, doesn't really help. Uh, so. What we what we're doing with these events, so as to get this turnout, is um, we're not really relying on people knowing about skeptical thinking or a specific speaker. For example, even some of the more popular speakers, like Jerry Cohen, he's he's huge. <laughs> Jerry Cohen is one of my favorite biologists. I mean, I mm. read his blogs for years. But the thing is, nobody knows him in Bulgaria. Like he he can go in front of a, a room full of like seven hundred people like five people might know him. Uh, so we're not really relying on big names. I mean, we get big names because they're awesome and they, for some reason, decide to travel to Bulgaria, which still amazes me. Uh, but uh, we get it because we essentially sell the event as, a, as an entertainment thing. I mean, we try to say that science is cool and science is something that is worthy of your pastime. Uh, we're not trying to say, okay, we're, we're an educational thing. We're, 
will make you think about stuff, uh, will show you the glory of whatever. Uh, this is not the way to sell an event, in my opinion. It has to be sexy. It has to be something <laughs> that people, yeah, that people like uh, intimately in their own time, not something that feels like a school or a duty or something similar. The content itself is going to be cool anyway. I mean, they will come and they will like it and they will come again. Um, but you shouldn't try and say, yeah, you should know about uh, evolutionary biology in order to come. Otherwise, uh, you might as well stay home. This, this is wrong. That is amazing. But how did you actually start? So what's your background? How did you decide on a day that, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give people some f food for thought. Okay, so... Um we were drinking beer <laughs> so that's a good way to start yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the best of beginnings um, so look both me and Vasya are interested in popular science uh, as a hobby we're not scientists ourselves we're, I, I deal with sales I have a company that uh, basically deals with sales and Vasya's marketing uh, we have literally no direct connection to say physics or mathematics and the stuff we are actually interested in. I mean, it's something I'm uh, personally interested in, but I'm not actually professionally into it. It's basically we're reading in our spare time uh, on different science topics, and that's what got us interested in yeah. science in general. Yeah, so uh, that's, that's, that's our interest, and I was thinking along the lines of, okay, maybe I should do something more. Maybe I should say, go and study physics and go and do other stuff. But it's, that wasn't practical. I mean, that wasn't something that uh, would actually have that much value for me because I don't have that much free time. Uh, and my skill set is uh, different. I mean, my skill set is along the lines of selling stuff, making stuff work, making organizational work, selling an event, promoting stuff. Uh, same for Vasi. So we just said, okay, let's let's stick to what we know we can do and just uh, make an event, make an organization that would be able to um, essentially promote science, so as to be actually useful <laughs> for for people that are into science uh, and would potentially want to be interested in science. Because look, with these events, we know that this this isn't education or whatever. Yeah, uh, these these events at best uh, could uh, could be could be like a spark for a few people uh, during these events to get interested in science, um, be it uh, like us in a more a minor way, interested in just reading books, watching videos, going to other conferences, etc., or just going and saying "fuck it," I'm going to go study physics, for example. By the way, I keep saying physics because physics is awesome, uh, and obviously the better all the other sciences. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, <laughs> I've just been—I've been to the um, talk yesterday. Uh, Lawrence Krauss was in London, and he was giving a talk about the um, gravitational waves, and it was just absolutely unbelievable how well he can communicate it to lay people like me who has no idea about physics, and he just made it sound like the most incredible thing in the world. So, by the way, he's very uh, generous with his time, and he gives great talks. And I don't know if you reach out to him on Twitter, he might come to Bulgaria. I'm just saying. Yes, I would very much like to... I'm even fine with kidnapping him to Bulgaria, to be honest. 
No, but I honestly, I'm not even kidding because um, he's been around the, the world a few times. He he go, you know, he goes all over with his talks. He goes to universities, etc. I think you should guys definitely try to reach him on Twitter. He replies. But anyways, just just do it, guys. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, uh, I'm obviously interested in getting Lawrence Krauss on our event, uh, but I don't know. If if his program allows it, that would be amazing. Please tell me something else. Getting back to the international speakers again, how did you come up with that idea? Because obviously, having international speakers is much more expensive. It's a very tough call. It's not easy to organize for and stuff like that. So if what you said is really like that, that people are not necessarily informed about the, the speakers prior to attending the conference. So why do you think it's important or why did you go for international speakers instead of trying to recruit speakers from Bulgaria? Okay, so there's a few things. Um, we, we do have speakers from Bulgaria as well, but they're essentially a minority. Um, the reason is we don't really have... Um, a history of popular science in Bulgaria that, that, that has produced some amount of people that are good at, at speaking to other people, to lay people about their subjects. This is actually a tough thing to do and takes experience, takes, uh, takes a certain amount of doing to be good at. Uh, while at the same time UK and the US uh, have that as a thing. In Bulgaria we, we are the event where people get that experience at so uh, I can't just go, say, to a university and have a pool of, say, 10 professors or something similar that are like, yeah, I will be magical and we'll be able to give you a perfect lecture. This is not happening. Oftentimes when we're working with Bulgarian speakers, we have to work with them. And I'm, I'm not trying to say this is a bad thing, uh, but we, we're trying to work with them to um, form their presentation in a way that is going to be uh, workable for our public, uh, try and do some dry runs about how it will be um, actually delivered. Uh, presentational skills isn't necessarily something a scientist has. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's something you learn as well. So that's, that's the main bottleneck about using only Bulgarian speakers. Second thing is, uh, when you're using people that have been doing this for years, uh, you get a way more polished content. Uh, the amount, I mean, the quality of the content itself uh, rapidly increases when you have a speaker such as Christopher French or, um, as I said, Jerry or whoever uh, from our other speakers. Now, they're just amazing with the public. Just, just Andrew Berry, for example, is one of my number one top speakers in general. And I've been to all sorts of events like marketing events and whatever. Um, so it's about quality and the thing with quality is we try to make our events to not look really scrappy <laughs> well what i'm trying to say is we want to make our events cool but not only low cost cool uh so to speak that's why we trying to invest in a in in, in the best possible locations we're trying to invest in our speakers uh to try and be able to deliver something that people will remember uh, we can do this in a garage, obviously, but uh, people won't fucking like it and <laughs> they won't come again. So uh, v vision, um, uh, appearance is really important for people to actually have a positive um, 
positive experience at the whole thing. And both speakers and the whole uh, presentation and promotion and you know, event space, etc., is critical to this, I think. That's, that's amazing. You know, I do see the potential in this to actually inspire people who are attending this, these events to do something themselves in their own language in Bulgarian so that you introduce them to a world uh, a fantastic amazing world of science education and science communication and who knows they might end up doing the same thing in their own language which is amazing do you know of any occasions that this actually happened that someone started a blog someone started started something doing something uh, about it uh, organizing events and stuff Well, to be honest, uh, specifically about events, so far, no. I have been speaking with a bunch of people um, that are interested in doing something with our events. I mean, after each either Skeptics in the Pub or large ratio event, we get a bunch of people saying, yeah, we want to volunteer, we want to do stuff, we want to something. Um, and that's, that's really cool. But I haven't seen something that's uh, started because of us uh, in terms of events. A lot of people have come forward about, um, yeah, we, we, we're, we're interested in doing some stuff. Or um, I dropped uh, out from marketing and started doing mathematics and a bunch of stuff like this, which is really cool. Uh, you should all drop out from marketing and go to mathematics. But... <laughs> Yeah, but in terms of uh, developing further the community, we don't have it yet. I would very much like to have way more events. Currently, there's one more um, event that's related to science in Bulgaria, and that's by the British Council. Uh, it's the it's the science uh, Sofia Science Festival, um, but it's targeted at a way more for for more juvenile age essentially, which is still really cool because I mean kids should be getting interested in science. Uh, but there's a huge space for other events, and it's it's unfortunate we haven't been able to get something else started alongside us. So, so if if people want to know more about uh, your organization and your and your events, where should they go on on internet? I guess just on our website. It's ratio.bg. And one more thing, uh, even if people are not able to attend the event, we make a point of uh, recording all the talks on the Ratio Forum and upload them to our YouTube channel. So uh, oh, great. you can see those talks as well. Uh, basically, more than half of them are in English, so that would be accessible to all English speakers in Europe. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we haven't, been, we haven't been amazing with promoting the fact that we <laughs> record uh, events, but... It is there, so yeah. That is still amazing that it, it is there, and uh, especially that all that good content is available for everyone to listen to. That's amazing. So um, it looks like a great achievement, and uh, I do hope you have a long and very successful future with your event and with your organization. And to the others out there in Europe, ratio might not be the one event you will attend because of it not specifically being an international conference. But if you follow the example, that that just might be good enough. Uh, so it's, it's a great example and I wish you all the success with it. Uh, I'm afraid this, this is uh, what we had time for. Vasiliana and 
Yuba, thanks very much for uh, coming on the show. And uh, hope to bump into you somewhere in Europe in the future. Yeah, let's let's keep in touch, guys. Yeah, thanks a bunch for having us as well. Well, well I'm not sure about bumping, but yeah, we'd we'll love to see you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Thank thanks you very much. Time. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. See you, bye-bye. Yelena. Ha. Huh? Do you have a nice logical fallacy for us today? I believe you do. I do. I do, I do, I do. All right. So today's fallacy is called fake precision fallacy, also known as over-precision, false precision, misplaced precision, spurious accuracy. Um, and it's when you use implausibly precise statistics to give the appearance of truth and certainty or using negligible differences in the data to draw incorrect inferences. Mm-hmm. Um, so... One of the very good examples that I found of this fallacy was um, to deal with the um, cigarette advertisement uh, many years ago, because obviously now we know that all cigarettes are bad for you. And if you smoke one brand, it doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be healthier than if you smoke the other brand. But um, there was a study done uh, back in the day to say that this particular brand of cigarettes had a little bit less nicotine than this particular brand of cigarettes. I don't want to go into branding names or whatever. And the, cha- the, the, the difference between those percentages of nicotine was such small. So it didn't really matter. The nicotine was there. It was in a big enough amounts, whatever. It's cigarettes. But the uh, brand who had less nicotine used this data in their advertisement promoting themselves as better cigarettes. Hmm. How about this? Mm-hmm. And they went mm-hmm. on to say, oh, look at us, look at the study. Hey, buy us, we are healthier cigarettes, whatever, you know. Um, and of course, people never go into the detail of advertisement. Come on, who would spend hours researching it? They look at it and they say, think, oh, there, there was a study down university, scientists involved, all good things. And uh, they fall for it. Um, and that's the danger of this particular fallacy. Um, that, and statistics can be very helpful in some, in some instances, but very dangerously manipulated in others. So be aware. Lies, damn lies and statistics. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true, actually. Uh, yeah. Okay. So there you go. That's, that's Thanks very much, Yelena. Pontus. Yes, that's me. Yeah. I'm pretty sure someone's been really wrong lately in Europe. There's always somebody who's been really wrong. There's <laughs> no shortage of those. Uh, uh, but before I get into today's really wrong, I'd like to talk about uh, the really wrong from episode 11, where I was uh, not there, but I, I pre-recorded something and just have some updates on that. This, as you may remember, this is about Karolinska Institutet in Sweden who is uh, an organization who, among other things, appoints the Nobel Prizes in uh, physiology and medicine every year. So it's a very prestigious uh, organization. And they have a researcher there called Paolo Macchiarini. And he was, Paolo Macchiarini has been accused of fraudulent research after replacing windpipes in uh, human patients. Uh, And the... And his uh, operations has resulted in six deaths out of eight patients. And I am led to believe that the two other patients are not uh, feeling very well either. 
So the update on this is that Karolinska will replace part of their main board as a result of this scandal. And uh, also, I didn't mention last time that there's a criminal investigation uh, regarding manslaughter against uh, Macchiarini about this because he didn't do his research. He performed very dangerous operations on, on, on uh, patients and uh, some of, well, most of them died, actually. Mm. That's terrible. Anyway, so this is a big mess. It's really sad regarding such a prestigious institute uh, re- uh, linked to the Nobel Prizes in Physiology and Medicine. There are consequences, but those are initiated by the Swedish government. Okay. So Karolinska Institute has not taken its responsibility far enough. They are still wrong, uh, but hopefully they, this scandal will, will, you know, they will sweep this away and they will start over. But it's, it's really a mess. I don't, uh, very sad. Anyway. We have a new Really Wrong segment for this this week. And it has been sent in by Jeroen from Belgium. So thank you very much, Jeroen, for that. So this uh, week's prize goes to Elke Slurs, who is the State Secretary for Equal Opportunities uh, in Belgium. On the 5th of March, she announced that two police officers... Um, will be following a special training in forensic and investigative hypnosis techniques. Mm. She claims that this will enable the police to question victims of severe sexual crimes under hypnosis. So this is about um, retrieving suppressed oh. memories. Oh, that's, that that's is sh- is a very shady thing. That's really a shady thing. So uh, about this is about false memories, Absolutely. planted memories. Yeah. If you question people in a certain way, you it's very very easy to suggest certain things, and they the the people you interrogate will believe that what you're asking them to confess is the same is the truth, or what you're asking them to remember is the truth. Yeah, Jeroen, who sent this to us, correctly refers to uh, a researcher called Elizabeth Loftus. And she's one of the best-known researchers into this. And we will link to her Wikipedia page in the, in the show notes. This is really bad. And, and the reason I'm reacting to this especially is that we had a huge scandal in Sweden regarding a very similar thing. Uh, this was a mass murderer or a so-called mass murderer called Thomas Kvik. In the 90s, he was helped by the prosecution, mind you, to remember, in quotes, suppressed memories and he ended up confessing about 30 different murders he was found guilty of seven of them in in a court of law but has recently been uh, freed of all of them Uh, and uh, this is a lot to do with a journalist called Don Josefsson who actually received the Enlightener of the Year prize from the Swedish skeptics in 2013 for his, for his investigation into the circumstances. Thomas Quick was um, subjected to psychotherapy uh, in, under many, many years, which led to him uh, confessing to all these, uh, these uh, murders. And I think this applies as well to, to, to this thing in Belgium. You cannot, you cannot ask people to remember things that they have suppressed but because very very easily they start to 
to remember things that just isn't fabricating. There. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really bad. So, for clinging on to the thoroughly debunked pseudoscience of suppressed memories, Elke Slurs, who is the state secretary for equal opportunities in Belgium, gets the gets the prize for being really wrong. And again, thanks to Juron who sent this to us. And we do appreciate any tips like this. So keep them coming to us. Yeah, definitely. Thanks very much, Pontus. What's next is our trial by Jelena. Jelena, try to deceive us, please. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I've got three items for you guys. No kidding. Two of which are true and one of which is false. Um, And uh, I shall be reading them out. Um, It has been discovered uh, that the dung beetle, when get lost, they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. You know who dung beetles are, don't you? Yeah. The little little bugs. Okay, item number two. The uh, 14th century Chinese leader... Jio Kanga managed to father 867 children and therefore became father to 1.2 million descendants. And item number three, the researchers discovered that chimpanzees can identify other chimpanzees individually from seeing photographs of their rare ends, i.e. bottoms. Hmm. All right then, guys, let's have a crack at it. A crack. Uh, do you want Pontus to go first? Yes, I'd like to go first. Excellent. So it's been discovered that dung beetles do get lost, and when they do, they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. I guess they have some fancy, uh, what do you call it? Antennas. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. They have some fancy, uh, very fancy telescopes there. Very small, like two or two, three centimeters long, but uh, looking into uh, millions of uh, stars. That's good. Okay. Good for them. Uh, 14th century Chinese leader. How do you pronounce that? Jiokanga. Yeah, Jiokanga. Well, that's how I would Jokanga. pronounce it. Jiokanga. something. Yeah. yeah, he's dead now, so it doesn't matter. He fathered 867 children. Hmm. Okay. Good for him, unless he had a good life. Uh, researchers discovered that chimpanzees can in- identify other champ- chimpanzees individually by looking at their rare ends by looking at photographs of their rare ends that's right ah, that's very clever of them i don't know what i think all of these are true <laughs> i don't think i don't have a problem with any of them i will how do you know about the chinese leader then it may might be might be dna investigations and 1.2 million is it actually i do i think Number two is wrong. I don't think that because I think that even if he did father 867 children, which I think is fairly possible if you're in that position, I think he would have more than uh, 1.2 million descendants by now. It's a long time ago. So that's the that's the false. One. All right. Two. What about you, Anders? I kind of tend to agree. Um, when it comes to the dung beetles... Uh, we do know that certain animals can uh, navigate using celestial bodies, so it's it's it should be doable. 
By the way, you mentioned uh, small telescopes for the dung beetles. Actually, they have something very similar to that. Because um, their eyes, uh, these complex uh, eye structure they have, that every single element of it has its own lens, which is, which is cool. It's super cool. Um, yeah, so this is how they see. So I can buy that. Yeah, I have a bit of a problem with the, uh, the 14th century Chinese leader. First of all, fathering 867 children, that's not an easy task. So I'm not sure whether a 14th century Chinese leader could live longer than like 50 years. 867 children, that means a lot of sex, which... Hmm. I, yeah, they used to have concubines in there in the, those days. Like, know, I, think, I think the ruler will have like 500 concubines and that's not... Sure. Yeah, so, but never mind. So, so it's, it's... It's only a problem when calling all the children yeah, to dinner, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. I don't Indeed. think they were, I don't think they were pre- reproducing for that kind of, uh, for the same reason that we are producing, reproducing now. <laughs> but even if that is possible, yeah, that 1.2 million descendants is a low number for 876 children in the 1300s. That's, c- come on, more than 600 years. It's actually 700 years. Uh, it's it's going to be much more than that. Imagine that. that if Yeah, we would all be his descendants. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, in a way, yeah. So I, I have a problem with that. The chimpanzees, but I have a problem with the chimpanzees identifying their peers by seeing photographs of their rear ends. Uh, okay, I understand that they can identify things based on the photograph. What I don't know is how they express or how you measure that they actually identified that certain uh, individual. So there could be sophisticated signals that they use that, okay, I know that's you because I hate you, so there's a certain amount of hatred uh, going on there. And, And the other thing is that I would say in order for someone... To identify you by your rear end has to be very well experienced. <laughs> it it has to have a huge amount of observation. If I saw a photograph of your butt, I would not recognize. No, that's what I'm saying. That I'm not... you have to observe yeah. it for a long time in order to be able to identify it. It takes dedication. That's what <clears> you're saying. And and effort, yeah. So it's <laughs> okay. So I would okay. okay so so I'm settling, basically, what I'm are you saying? I out of the two, I could still, mm-hmm. I could still believe the second, if I wanted to. So I'm gonna go for number three to be the false. Okay, so I'll do them in in order then. So the first item of one, it has been discovered that when dung beetle get lost, they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. And what do you know? Um, yes, that is true. Uh, it's um, been discovered by 
um, scientists um, at the Lund University in Sweden, by the way. Um, so they, they, they wrote a paper. We'll link to their study in the, the show notes. Um, and they are very clever creatures, as it turned out, which is the, very cool. The Lund cool. researchers. Did you mean the researchers or the Beatles? The Beatles. The Beatles course. are the clever. Beatles. Okay. okay. Do you know? Do you know how many brains they have? Uh, None. Three. Yeah. Three. Yeah. Um. I, I I don't know specifically about the the dung beetles, but many insects have three actual three brains, uh, which is which is mm. great. It's it's it's. Yeah, there are ganglia. Actually, they're not specifically brains, but they are sometimes called brains. Uh, abdominal brain, oh, for example, right. they have an abdominal brain. Yeah, uh, yeah, cool. it's pretty cool. So, uh, but I have a, I have yeah, one more okay. question. Go on. It says they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. Where is home for a dung beetle? Well, I think they like do a little like dig a little thing, a hole that's their home, and they like roll so the in, dirt in, into in their, their home. Own, you know, to... in their own shit bowl. That's that's <laughs> yeah. Anders, home is where they lay their hats. Yeah, where so they lay own, their eggs their and own things shit like bowl. that. That's what it is. Okay, so um, yeah, now I'm item number two. Um, this is an item uh, where many, many kids are discussed. Anyway, so this Chinese mm-hmm. fella with 867 kids. Um, yes, yeah, so this is false. This is the false item, I have to say no. straight away. Yeah. Um, yes. But it's based on a relatively, and I don't want to say true uh, story, but... Um, of the Emperor of Morocco, Ismail Ibn Sharif. And it does say uh, on his Wikipedia page that he did father um, uh, this 867 children. But the thing is, this cannot be used as a as a fact because, like Pontus said, I think, how do we know how many kids he's had? I mean, historians recorded various things and, it, you know, whatever. But um, uh, it's hard to prove. But he did have 500 concubines and four wives. So I guess it is possible. I mean, if he had at least two kids to half of them or whatever, you know, it's already, we're already looking at fairly large numbers and he was in power for 30 years. So, you know, so that, but there wasn't Chinese guy and the 1.2 million descendants came from another source. So I kind of combined the two. Hmm. You fooled um, me. But it was in, it was interesting. I win. I win. It was no, but it was interesting that actually there was a guy who did father that many kids, or there is a speculation that he might have done uh, very easily with the amount of women he had in his har- harem. Yeah. So, um, oh. Your that's before you know the civilization. <laughs> um, and then uh, item number three, of course, uh, that leaves item three, which is true that researchers discovered that the chimpanzees can identify other chimpanzees individuals from seeing photographs of their rare ends. Now, Andres, uh, when you were talking about the way, how would researchers know? So the researchers did this experiment. The six adult chimpanzees uh, were trained on computerized matching to sample, um, and they were shown a sample behind of a chimpanzee and rewarded for selecting a corresponding facial image. So there was a rewarding system going on. This is how they knew that they recognized okay. the correct chimpanzees to the correct bottoms. Yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, surprisingly enough, and I, I, 
and I know what you were saying about knowing the, the, the rare ends, but I think because chimpanzees never wear clothes, they look at each other's rare ends quite a lot, I'm sure, and then like pick nits and whatever they do with, the, with each other. And so, I don't know. It seems quite plausible. But the, uh, yeah, so that's experiment proven that, that they can do that. No, no, no problems. Um, and, I can imagine them actually also, the reason why they would be probably quite good at this is because they also follow each other all the time and so would look at each other's rare ends all the time. I don't know. Hmm. It's a fine tradition that we don't have anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As humans. So there we go. And uh, in this uh, episode, Pontus is the winner. Yay! Congratulations. Andres... And Andres is nearly the winner because he kind of thought, but then he changed his mind. Yeah, no point. Yeah, no, no point for that. No. <laughs> okay, yeah. you know, you know what? I let you win. I let you win that. Ah, okay. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Yelena. That was fun. Okay. And to even better the fun, could you help us close the show with a nice quote? Yeah. Please. Yeah, I've got a quote from a Swedish biochemist who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry called... His name is Arne Tiselius. Am I saying it right, Pontus? Arne. Arne Tiselius. Oh, yes. Um, he said that we live in a world where, unfortunately, the distinction between true and false appears to become increasingly blurred by manipulation of facts, by exploitation of uncritical minds and by the pollution of the language. Hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. All right, guys. Well, it was emotional as always. <laughs> Get in touch soon. Yeah. All right. See you around. Good night. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Good bye -bye. night. Bye bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe You're listening. Oh, no, fuck. <coughs> You're not listening. What am I? What, what am I saying? You're not listening. Listen to me. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you can, you can come before me. Oof. Yeah, well, I Andres always does that. Mm -hmm. it's like... What? <laughs> what did I say again? Sorry. Yeah, let's not repeat it. I have it on tape. <laughs> I ran this through Google Translate and it didn't work out. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Google Translate is like the best yeah. comedy thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. It can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
Like, oh yeah, something about coconuts, and I think it doesn't. It's not relevant to the discussion. Someone's telephone is ringing. Sorry, what's going? Sorry, it's it's my my supper is being delivered. Uh oh, so. your supper. Yeah. Supper. So, oh, are you gonna do the thing, the introduction thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>